Welcome back to the AEC Disruptors Podcast, your platform to help push the AEC industry forward. I'm your host, Chris Riddell, and joining me today is my co-host, Jackson Sensat. What's going on, Jackson? I am stoked to be back for another season, Chris. This one's going to be bigger and better than ever. Absolutely. This is fun. Uh, We are off to a better start this round. We definitely started earlier. So we, uh, we're looking forward to this new season. Um, for this first episode of the new season, we have Sarah Maffey. Uh, she's the head of industry relations at Local Logic. And if you look up what Local Logic is, they kind of one of the taglines I saw was digitizing the built world for better decisions. They are a location intelligence platform that's um, digitizing the built world for consumers, developers, governments. The talk was loaded with uh, information around data and placemaking, all sorts of stuff. Uh, what did you think about the uh, the talk? You know, that was <clears throat> something that, you know, com- coming from the contractor side where, you know, you just build the buildings that you're kind of told to build. You don't really think about how that building fits in to the neighborhood or the community at large. And, um, you know, the whole... Um, mission of local logic is to build cities or it's placemaking um, and it's using data and analytics to determine um, you know what goes best in what spot using scores uh, there's a variety of different scores that we go into um, this was one that definitely um, blew my mind <laughs> as far because it's just something that you know people don't really think about um, and you know, in the construction industry, we're trying to learn how to harness data um, and local logic. They, they definitely know how to do that. So it's something that we can learn. What was the score learn. you brought up? You Vibrancy. Vibrancy score. That seemed to be one of her favorite <laughs> favorites. Yeah. Um, no, it was, it was very cool. And like you said, um, they are doing a good job at managing the data Um collecting it and then using it for informed decisions. We even talk about the difference between data and data intelligence, providing that insight. So I thought it was a, it was a good talk and it was a great way to start off the season. So I hope you get to listen to it, enjoy and check back for more. Welcome back for another episode of the AEC Disruptors. Uh, today's guest is Sarah Maffey, Head of Industry Relations at Local Logic. Uh, we're really excited to have you, Sarah. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. This is going to be Absolutely. fun. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Um, before we get started, maybe set the stage a little bit. Uh, I'd like to get to know you. You know, who are you? And then really, you know, who is Local Logic? Yeah, cool. I um, I have worked in a variety of different parts of the built environment throughout my career. I actually started in construction management up in New York um, as a mechanical superintendent. So I've made some pretty wild uh, pivots in my, in my time. Um, I worked for a period of time in economic development, which has really um, impacted the way that I think about data and community development. And uh, most recently, I've worked in commercial real estate, and that's what I've been doing up until joining Local Logic, which is a location intelligence prop tech company. Um, before we do go too far, I want to know a little bit. You, what is Local Hippo? <laughs> I was stalking you, and I saw that, and I'm like, oh, I really want to understand what Local Hippo is. 
So we'll probably get into it, but I am pretty obsessed with placemaking. And I'm also, uh, I think this kind of ties in with my work with uh, economic development. I'm really interested in supporting local businesses. And so I created these uh, gift boxes, which I think of as micro placemaking. And I curated uh, experiences and things that were locally made. And a lot of my um, customers were multifamily developments that were giving these gifts as welcome gifts to new residents. And it was really meant to be like, here's a snapshot of everything that you can walk to around your new home and kind of a little, a little micro placemaking gift. So, yeah. I think that's so cool. Yeah. I'm sure we'll, when we talk about placemaking, I think some of that'll make sense. But yeah, when I was looking, doing some research and I saw those things about you, I felt like compelled to ask because it, I thought it was really an interesting thing. I mean, I've seen things like Birchbox and all these things that people send through the mail subscription, but then looking at creating these little placemaking gift baskets, I thought was a interesting thing. Yeah, um, it's a little total passion project. <laughs> no, that's awesome. No, I think it's really cool. Uh, so local logic, um, you, what it like when you go out and you all are sort of trying to sell local logic, what, mm-hmm. what is kind of the big elevator pitch that you give to what local logic is, what it can do for, yeah. uh, for his customers? I mean, I, I think what we've done is build a digital twin of cities and we're really focusing on all those pieces, I think of it as an ecosystem of data. And imagine if you're standing in a place, like what are all the things that you're observing, taking in subjectively? Are there trees on the street? Are there cute retail shops? Is it accessible for me to walk from point A to point B? Or do I have to go under you know, uh, train tracks or over a four lane highway? We take in all these pieces of data about the experience of a place you know, the neighborhood surrounding a site, for example, and we use data to actually quantify that. So we have our location scores, which are really the backbone of all of our insights. Um, and, and for me, that was really the exciting part of working at Local Logic is the fact that we can do that. I think a lot of times um, folks in real estate are using their very valid experience of a certain submarket or uh, boots on the ground visits, but to be able to do all that with data, I think is where a lot of my former clients uh, were really requiring us to go. And it was hard to get that kind of data. So um, I think that's really what we bring to the table. Um, you kind of mentioned in the very beginning, uh, this idea of location intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, before we kind of talk about what location intelligence is, one thing I was curious when we were creating these outlines is, do you in your opinion, do you see a difference between what data is and then intelligence? Yes. Um, what, what is your thoughts on that? I think that um, data can be very messy. It can be um, require a lot of sort of cleaning and structuring to actually get to an actionable place. And to me, intelligence is you have used that data, you have cleaned it, you have structured it, you have created insights from it that are actually going to be usable um, in the, at the end of the day. So uh, that's, I think, what we provide, whether it's with our APIs or, or our platform. Sarah, I didn't realize that you worked for a mechanical contractor. Sorry to take a step back, but I too worked for a mechanical contractor. And I 
totally wild <laughs> sister. Yeah, i i consider them to uh be the superior trade contractor i know I, it's a little I biased they, they consider themselves to be the superior <laughs> trade <contractor>. absolutely yeah <laughs> so <laughs> i think it's I, I see i hadn't realized that so for you know you to go from there to a place like local logic i think that's really cool and when i was doing some of the research on it you know all this data that you're pulling for the different places, neighborhoods, cities is very objective. Mm -hmm. um, but the use of that data, um, I feel like can sometimes be really subjective. So whenever you're creating these scores, mm -hmm. um, which we'll, I want to get into later, how do you draw the line between subjective and objective when it comes to the data that you collect? I mean, we, we really don't collect any subjective data in our mm -hmm in our scores. Um, they're all, we have over 3000 data sources, but it's all data. It's not um, anyone on the team's opinion about a certain area. We, we don't have people going out and visiting and collecting thoughts on, you know, different areas. It's all based on data. So I, for me, it's like a very clear line. Um, I think that the different use cases um, that are out there for our customers, you know, they might be using our data to back up something that they feel uh, personally about an area. Um, but I think that's the beauty of using data as a gut check, you know? So are your, um, are your typical customers, are they developers coming to you looking for this sort of location intelligence? Yeah, I would say um, we have a variety of different customers. We have products that um, are sort of our original suite of products that are on a lot of home search sites and portals. Um, we have about 90% market share in Canada and we're growing rapidly in the U S with those products, but the, uh, data analytics platform that I spend a lot of time working on is really used. I would say primarily by commercial, uh, real estate investors and developers. So what is it, um, and it'll kind of lead into this idea of placemaking, but what is it you find that people are coming to you? looking for, you know, what information do they feel is relevant when they're sort of perusing all of this uh, location intelligence? You know, I think we're um, in a really interesting place economically right now where uh, multifamily is potentially like a, a better investment than office, I think we could say at the moment. And um, we also have certain markets, like we've seen a massive migration of people from, you know, to secondary and tertiary cities, I would say, like cities, smaller cities that still uh, provide a real sense of place, but perhaps at a lower price point or just with less uh, congestion than um, some of our larger cities. And that's not to say that larger cities are dying. I don't believe that at all, but I think there has been a real um, population migration happening. And so I think what we're seeing then on the investor and developer side is that they might be looking in new markets that they have not worked in before. Maybe they sit in California or New York and they're trying to uh, invest in, I don't know, Denver or Atlanta, and they're not as familiar with where should I go? Like what, what specific neighborhoods are hot? Where are people moving? Um, where should I be building? And so I think that our, platform allows them to create these custom heat maps based on the criteria that's most important to them. And 
you can see the whole market, like where are the, the hotspots based on what you're looking for. Um, and I think it's a really good way of like expanding and quickly understanding a new market um, and where, where you should be located. So I think that's kind of like high level. Um, and then again, like I, I think investment committees, clients are really just looking for more data to back up these decisions that they're making. And they're no longer necessarily going to be okay with just hearing someone's opinion on a certain location. And the fact that our location scores objectively quantify things that they care about, like being near certain restaurants, grocery stores, um, access to all different types of transit and the feeling of the place. I think that's just, that's helping make those decisions based on data. And, and especially with, I think all the um, uncertainty right now, that's what people need. I know I, uh, like in our area, we live, we kind of Metro Atlanta um, and our office is, you know, 45 minutes away, more localized, but obviously because of COVID, everyone going remote, everybody sort of retooled their perspective of where the office needs to be. Well, and so what we've seen is, and I just saw this just the other day that a developer from California is coming out and right near us. So we're kind of, again, a little more rural area, um, developing, you know, 1500 home, new neighborhood. And, you know, it is interesting to think that that individual who, again, is from California is identifying our, our area as an up and coming area, but they're also, I, I would hope is taking into account some of this type of information as to what's nearby. We have a lot of new restaurants happening. We have a lot of new schools that are being developed. That all information that you find or that sort of shows up in in your platform? Yes, absolutely. We have a we have a uh, depending on the different level of school, we have elementary, high school um, scores. We have restaurant score. Um, so yeah, all of that is what we consider to be value drivers and um, part of the the machine learning that we're doing behind the scenes too to to try to help people understand. Like uh, I think people sometimes have. Uh, an idea of what they think the value drivers of change are in a, in an area. And sometimes they're actually like lagging indicators. Like there were, there were actually data points that you could have seen prior to that, that caused those restaurants to start coming or those new schools um, to open. So I, that's really where we're trying to get at is being able to use data to see those things earlier and predict where, uh, how areas will change. I think that's a really interesting concept because of, um, again, you know, going back to this huge neighborhood coming, um, mm -hmm. it could have been either way. I mean, I guess the neighborhood could have come because there were restaurants, but it could have also been that there's a previous neighborhood of that size came because they knew there was a location for a new school. They knew there was going to be a lot of commercial um, development or at least a zone for commercial. So mm -hmm. they started to have some of those predictive measures. Um we, we've talked all around it, but I know placemaking is, is very um, important to you um, based on a lot of the things we've already talked about. How would you sort of level set? How would you define what placemaking is? And then how is local logic really helping to um, develop uh, places? I, to me, placemaking is elevating the sense of place that might already exist that's kind of an ideal situation when you're in an existing neighborhood, for example, 
Um, but I think that there's a lot of development now that's, um, you know, kind of blue ocean creating that sense of place. And for me, the way that I think about placemaking, it's really the almost like the Venn diagram of people and places. A lot of it is really about the experience that we have, uh, human-centric design, the kinds of um, retail that are available, the kinds of programming, you know, whether it's like music in the evening or just kind of community building, social connectivity that is created in a place. Um, that's, that's how I would define placemaking. Is and that think- what really spurred your passion for local hippo? <laughs> it is. Um, Yes, I am such a placemaking nerd. I think, so I went to school for architecture and urban design. And I think um, the way I kind of describe how I think about this, because in my prior job, I was leading placemaking um, really on the office side. And that's not normally how urban designers, urban planners think about placemaking. I think normally uh, it's talked about in more of like an urban public setting um, in public spaces, but I think that there's this confluence of that public space and there's been so much talk about like workplace strategy. And for me, the, the connection is like, we're paying more attention to how we interact with space and how we, how we can interact with each other more meaningfully. And I think that's what placemaking does. And it doesn't matter what asset type we're talking about or what context. Um, it's really about thinking about how does this place support and encourage that kind of social connectivity and experience of the people in it. Which is really interesting when we're in a time where um, I have a young daughter. And so the idea of lots of people is scary. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, so, you know, how do we, how do we balance this idea of designing an appropriate place, but then also keeping, I mean, this whole pandemic is something none of us ever really thought about. Is that something we need to start considering when we do these placemaking scores and thinking about it? Well, I would say, you know, I I think that our scores support placemaking decisions, but I think the idea of placemaking, I mean, there's so many interesting examples of how um, people have been trying to experiment with this virtually, you know, over the last year and a half, um, because we're, you know, and I think there is some zoom fatigue and things like that of like how to, how to accomplish that. But, um, I think on the sort of physical spaces side, what we've seen, um, is more interest in outdoor space, for example, you know, like just knowing that there are parks nearby, um, that you're going to have access to, maybe go have coffee and sit outside. Like that kind of stuff is a lot more important to people now. And I think that they're making decisions on where their homes are and where their offices are based on access to that, those kinds of things that um, maybe wouldn't have been priorities before going through this massive shift in how we live. I mean, we, we look for lunch places based on how close they are to a park. Um, mm-hmm. so that we can do takeout. It doesn't get cold by the time we get there that we can go. But then what's interesting is then we get there and now we judge parks based on shade. Like what parks have more, you know, there's a really nice park nearby, but there's not a single tree around, yeah. you know? So all of those things were things that we never, we never did car picnics. We never really ate in the park that we find ourselves doing now. And, and by the way, like our park score would have a lower score if there were not actually decent tree coverage in the park. 
that's part of what we're considering in that score. We have a lot of nuance going on. The AEC Disruptors podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and champion innovation with real-world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for the AEC, MEP, and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit asti.com and let them know we sent you. Take into account deciduous and non-deciduous trees for winter time. That is a great question. (laughs) I have to ask that question. I'm I'm interested in how, you know, because since the pandemic, you know, there's been a lot of dominoes that have fallen, um, whether it be people realizing that, you know, they don't need to go in the office every day. It's more important for them to find a place to work where they're comfortable as well as productive no matter where that is. So there's been a lot of people moving around. I mean, I moved um, over the past couple of years myself and, you know, we just had the uh, latest edition of the U.S. census that's come out. So I'm curious how things like the census impact, um, you know, the scores that local logic puts out. Um, you know, I don't know that our scores are as connected to um, census data, but we do we do make demographic data available in our platform. It's actually one of our also a popular API um, that we offer. Mm-hmm. And the way that we think about it, I think if you've ever looked at a census map, I know that's kind of like a nerdy thing, but coming from economic development, I've looked at a lot of census maps. Um, the shapes of these tracks can be pretty they don't make a lot of sense. Sometimes they're, they're kind of wonky and sometimes can be very large. And when you're using that kind of public data that is sort of like almost like a data dump, it doesn't have any insights, you know, that difference between intelligence and data. Um, it can be hard to make decisions using those large tracks. So what we try to do is actually um, look at like a five minute walk around a site and be really targeted with how we think about demographics, like who really lives within a five minute walk around this site. And we weight any census tracks accordingly to fit within that radius. Um, and I think that that's way more usable than saying, I need, I'm right on the edge of these two massive census tracks. I'm gonna take all of that data and try to make sense of that in decision-making. Um, so, well, it's not necessarily like a part of our um, scores. It is a really big part of decision-making and a data point that we make available. Are you all consider, I mean, I, I think you are, cause I've, I've seen it in some of your articles, but um, you know, the concept of the 15 minute city, um, does that theory or concept, do you feel like plays heavily in how you all are approaching your, your numbers and scores? Uh, yes, very much. So our, our scores right now are really um, based on the walkability, the access to all of these different things, whether it's schools, grocery stores, that's a big part of our scores. Um, and so we, our scores are perfect for a 15 minute city, you know, to, to understand what's within um, a reasonable walk of a site. I think where we're going is, you know, there's almost like a second version of a 15 minute city in more driving cities that I think um, 
it's still a 15 minute city. It's just in your car <laughs> that people are willing to kind of go that far. Um, and it kind of expands the radius that we're talking about in terms of understanding what kind of amenities and services are available. Um, but I, I would say overall, I think what we've seen over the last year and a half is people just aren't necessarily going as far from home, whether that's driving or walking. Um, you're kind of doing everything a little bit closer and um, our scores are really helpful for that. Yeah, I think that's interesting. A 15 minute neighborhood is going to be a whole lot different in New, New York City mm-hmm. rather than somewhere that's super spread out like Houston or something yeah. like that. Well, I live in Atlanta and I, I think um, what I consider close within 15 minutes is definitely not something I would walk to. Um, <laughs> but it's still, I think, in my 15 minute radius, you know. I mean, it takes me 20 minutes to get to the interstate from where I live. So, I mean, it really starts to cut off where you can go. I mean, something that always would bug me is I'd go for a run or something and you'd see a cul-de-sac of a very long neighborhood that's like backs right up to like a parkway. Mm. And you just know that that person has to drive through their very long neighborhood to get back to that parkway. Um, So, I mean, what... And it's a little off topic, but, you know, with your urban design background and, you know, during this whole pandemic, a lot of us have sort of retreated home. We're working from home. We're looking at spaces around us and we're developing in spaces around us, but it kind of conflicts with the idea of urban sprawl. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do, do you think there's a media, you know, a middle ground behind managing urban sprawl, which I know a lot of urban designers and city planners really like to pay attention to but also creating the accommodations that so many of us really are sort of yearning for. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I think it's really rare to see apartments now without some element of retail. And I also think that there's been, and maybe this is um, impacted by the fact that I do live in Atlanta where we're really focusing on creating density within the ITP, you know what I'm talking about, yep. Chris, <laughs> yep. um, within the perimeter. Um, I, I, I think that that's all being supported. I mean, there's there's just more of a densification happening um, with the amount of housing that's going on sites. And um, I think it's interesting. We really started with this residential focus, but what I'm seeing more and more is the use of our scores to understand like what kind of retail needs to be programmed into the bottom of this, you know, five-story apartment building that I think previously uh, it, it might be going into a neighborhood where there is a lot of um, single family homes and maybe duplexes and things like that. And maybe this is near transit and that's why it's being allowed, et cetera. But I think there's uh, mixed use is really um, a good solution. I think mm-hmm. as we, as we think about that. Mm-hmm. I, I absolutely could agree with that. Are there ever any situations where, you know, what would be, you know, a perfect fit for a neighborhood can't be there due to zoning or things like that? Sure. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, this might be going in kind of a different direction, but zoning, I, I think, you know, you can always get a variance. You can go to the neighborhood, work with them to change what the zoning is, if that really is a perfect fit for the neighborhood and what the community wants as well, um, not just, you know, my, what might make the most sense uh, ROI-wise for the developer. 
Um, but I, I think that that's where we want to go with our data, because as you mentioned before, like a lot of our early adopters on the analytics side are developers and investors, but we, a lot of us at Local Logic, especially our co-founders have this kind of nerdy urban planning, urban design background. And we see a world where making this kind of data available also to communities and municipalities will help make those decisions better. It's sort of like, um, when you have data that's so siloed and only one of the stakeholder groups has access to it, then you're really missing out on, I think, a lot of um, basis for good conversation and compromise and making those kinds of changes that might actually benefit everyone. But there isn't um, an open dialogue happening. A lot of times the public feedback that comes on a project is relatively late in the process, you know, like you've maybe you already own the property and now you're just trying to get this thing approved by the neighborhood, approved by the um, planning unit, et cetera, and going up the, the stages. But wouldn't it be nice if there was a way to begin that conversation from just an, a, a way of knowing like, what does the community actually want there? And what is the city trying to solve for in that location? And I think that's, that's where we have this vision of going is being able to sort of connect those three um, legs of the stool and, and make communities that actually um, are, are just based on, on data-driven decisions that actually serve everybody so much better. I would love that because, I mean, it, I feel like there's few, at least in our general area around here, there's few master plan communities where they like thought through even a high level some of the things that they want. Um, so much like when we drive down some of the local areas, it seems so reactive, like, oh, there was some land, let's put a Chipotle. Oh, there was some land, let's plop a Chick-fil-A. Oh, we need a gas station over here. Um, but it was really just based on does the site fit what we need and is it zone right? Um, I would love to see more communities pairing with the information, actually plan them out um, mm -hmm. and think through, you know, even like how big does my parkway need to be so that it could support what I hope to be a bunch of retail and, you know, shops and all the type of things that go with it. Oh, I was just going to say, perhaps maybe investing more in mass transit or um, knowing, you know, I think that there's a lot of inequities that can be um, unearthed by looking at the data and you, you can easily see, you know, what neighborhoods really lack trees and parks and access to grocery stores, for example. And, um, when you have that kind of information as a city, then maybe that's a, um, an ask that you ask of a developer that's coming into that area so that the, the community that already is there can be served in some way by this new investment in the community, you know, instead of making it feel a little bit more random. Although I think that Chipotle probably uses a lot of data. I'm sure they do. Decisions on where they go. That was um, a bad example, just because they're building this. Chipotle, Chipotle. Too, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. They're right across from each other. It's like the worst two examples because I know <laughs> that they, because we work with Chick-fil-A, so I know what they use. Yeah. Um, when you, you mentioned it a little bit, um, and when we start to talk about like, what, what does the future look like for stuff like this? Um, you talked about how neighborhoods can start to predict um, their needs, uh, you know, Talk a little bit about that. What you know? What do you exactly do you mean? And what do you hope that your platform can start to do so that? And we're kind of already touching on it, but that the communities can start to predict, so we know how they're going to change over time. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that there's so many, um, what I'll just probably keep calling like value driving factors. Um, and, and we're doing the modeling behind the scenes so that we understand like what those things are. And sometimes it really is noticing um, changes in demographics. A lot of times there's um, a specific investment that might spur this in a neighborhood. Like uh, there's an example in Oakland of a theater that, you know, the area um, changed incredibly rapidly after somebody invested in this theater and reopened it. Um, so it's like, how do you find something like that is kind of a one-off, but can you um, understand where new transit stops are going to be and that, and the impact of something like that on how a neighborhood's going to change? Do you see a certain um, education level suddenly moving into an area because maybe um, other, other neighborhoods have become too expensive and now there's sort of like this, uh, I'm using my hands and we're on a podcast. So I have to <laughs> think of- like There'll a be a video component, video. it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Expansion into these other neighborhoods. And so, um, you know, maybe it's the start of, uh, a rapid opening of multiple coffee shops or multiple bars or multiple tattoo uh, studios. There's just certain things and it's going to differ based on the market, what those drivers are. Um, but what we have done is basically a cluster analysis. Like we can do this for specific sites. We'll say, um, you know, maybe a client has a certain site. We can look at sites that were similar to that in that same city, but perhaps in different neighborhoods and in other cities um, and map out all of those different factors with data of how that site, that surrounding neighborhood changed over the last five to 10 years. And then you can take those learnings and apply it to the site at hand. And so we've done this quite a few times um, in sort of more consulting type projects. And what we're working on right now is the ability to actually do that in our platform and in a more, um, I guess, scalable way instead of just sort of one-off projects. It's, per it's perfect timing with the uh, new infrastructure bill. I'm sure yeah. like that's, that's going to really, you know, change a lot of things and, um, you know, it's the perfect time for that. Yeah. You know, it, I think um, one of the pain points that we hear is just like a lot of this data is available, but it is a, it is really hard to access. And then even if you do access it, like it might just be kind of overwhelming, you know, like what am I going to do with all this? Or am I really going to try to track down um, where this new subway stop is going to be? You know, in a lot of times information is gleaned from reading newspaper articles that might mention something that's coming five years from now. And by the time, you know, it gets a little bit lost in the shuffle. So we're really trying to actually like um, make that data available and so you don't have to go down all these different rabbit holes trying to figure out the different pieces that are going to impact your site. So you're, um, do you get the sense that, or at least maybe on the development side, mm -hmm. or maybe the hope that a lot of developers are using this type of intelligence to decide where they go? Or is it, do you feel like that it's still early in the process of people adopting data to identify sites? I would say we're early in the process. I think what's interesting to me is um, trying to understand better the proxies that people are currently using that are more subjective and making the connection to the data that they could actually be using to make the decision. Um, 
I think a lot of it is um, hearsay from brokers or um, insisting on doing boots on the ground, but you get a really narrow um, view. You know, you're getting your personal opinion or someone else's personal opinion. And to be honest, that might not be how your um, ideal future resident would feel about a certain location. Those those personas might be really different. So I think that um, I think that there's a lot of awareness right now in commercial real estate that we should be using more data. I think that, as I said before, some sometimes that data is really overwhelming, and sometimes firms don't have um, the capacity in-house to clean, structure, create insights. Um, I mean, we have a whole company. <laughs> we have a whole company dedicated to doing that. So, for especially you know mid-size, smaller firms, that's that's a huge undertaking, and it's a real risk. And so, I think um, hopefully by creating this data analytics platform, that sort of lowers the barrier to entry of using data. But we're early in the process, and I think um, you know just kind of sharing good case studies, you know, um, getting out there, it's, it's going to be a little bit of a, an adoption curve, you know, like anything else. I mean, I love the idea of how even like the local cities, municipalities could use data for, you know, planning out schools and some mm -hmm. of those more um, public institutions that we have that they could do it more on um, intelligence and need. Mm -hmm. You know, if we're tapping into demographics, we have a better understanding of where all the schools need to be or all the senior living facilities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my hope would be that they are, cause I mean, in my example, a guy or a developer in California, there's no way they know a ton about Paulding County, Georgia. And, you know, I'm sure they do outside of going and visiting. Um, but those are two completely different types of individuals, the, mm -hmm. the person that's developing and the person that's going to use it. So um, it is exciting to hope that people are going to start pulling out the data a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think especially on the city side, like um, there are certain cities who are really trying to embrace, you know, IoT and all these um, sort of smart city technologies that are out there. I think it would be cool to, a lot of that to me is, um, I guess it is being used in some sense to decide on services and things like that. But it feels very micro, like very micro experience to me that that smart city, a lot of the data that's involved in that. And so I think some of our data, um, especially with our our AI, like um, AVMs and just trying to understand how neighborhoods are changing, you know, instead of just using a snapshot of what's happening today to actually be able to predict how a neighborhood's going to change, that married with, with some of the IoT, you know, level data that they're, they're already capturing, I think could be um, sort of a next level of, uh, of intelligence in making those decisions. I was reading on your website mm -hmm. and I saw all of these different scores and the one that caught my attention the most was the vibrancy score. That's a fan favorite. Yeah. So <laughs> what, what plays into a vibrancy score? How well, do I... Yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah. How, how, how does a neighborhood, um, you know, what are some of the things that go into having a high vibrancy score? I love that you picked this one because 
before I even joined Local Logic, this was like my score that I got really hooked on because um, I think it's like a perfect example of like vibrancy that feels so subjective, you know, but actually it's really not. Um, so we look at things like, you know, not only are there restaurants and bars around the site, um, but we also look at cultural things to do, things that actually like give you that sense of vibrancy, whether it's like art studios or music venues or comedy, you know, uh, clubs, things like that. Um, and it's also looking at like, you know, where I grew up in New Jersey, everything closes at six. I would give it a very low vibrancy score. Um, but there are, you know, a, a lot of neighborhoods that are like 18 hour neighborhoods. That's kind of like, um, I would say really big in like secondary and tertiary cities versus like 24 seven neighborhoods. So understanding data on like, how late are these things open? Can I go get a cup of coffee at 1030 and like, you know, hang out with friends and, and have sort of um, that vibrancy of urban life in this location. We use all sorts of data to be able to quantify that. So if you're ever wondering, a Dunkin' Donuts closes at nine and their donuts are not good. <laughs> we found that out. Talking about vibrancy. If you want donuts, don't go at the when they close. They're yeah, I think that's very limited. <laughs> yeah. You know, I tried. So it sounds to me like high vibrancy is a high sense of community within a neighborhood. Well, I think it's a high level of things that would foster a sense of community. Mm -hmm. I like that. Way. Um, we, I really do appreciate you joining us um, today. It was interesting to kind of hear about what Local Logic is doing. Uh, so, as we round up, I mean, what's your advice to those that are maybe considering getting into using the data but feel like they don't have that expertise? Um, you know, I, I would just say our platform is really easy to use. That's feedback that I get all the time. And it's you know, we're looking for early adopters to give us feedback as, as we add more features and data to it. And I think that that's a pretty low stakes way of testing out would data help you. Um, you don't have to invest in uh, purchasing data on your own. You don't have to invest in um, the ability to make sense of it all and actually turn it into intelligence and actionable insights. Um, so I would say, you know, please give me give me a shout, like we'll get you set up and like, just try out the analytics platform because I think that's a good starting place if that's something that you're interested in testing. Yeah, it sounds great. to me like, you know, in the construction industry, we are just now getting around to trying to harness our data for mm -hmm. good and for, you know, knowing how to build better projects in the future. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of placemaking, it sounds like, you all have a grasp on that. I, you know, it's, I am like excited to come to work every day because I get to talk about the things that I nerdily love. Um, so yeah, I think we're, we're headed in a really good direction. We've got a cool product right now. That's exciting. Well, I appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the AEC Disruptors podcast. Enjoy this episode. Leave us a rating or review while sharing with your friends and coworkers. I'd love to hear from you. Send me a LinkedIn request or follow our LinkedIn page and let me know if there's a topic you'd like to hear. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The AEC Disruptors is directed by Christopher Riddell, produced by Todd Wyant, edited by Eric Daniel, and co-hosted by Jackson Sensat. The AEC Disruptors is an applied software production Copyright Applied Software 2021.